We're in our third week, I believe, in, in the study of Mark chapter 14. And as you turn there, I want to remind you that last week I kind of left you off with a, a hard spot to stop. Did you ever watch one of those TV shows? I don't know if they still do it or not, but it seems like at the end of a season, what they do is right before the last episode, they're going to have an hour season finale. And as they get ready for that, you have the episode before that, and you're all excited because they're always going to unveil something that you've hoped would happen the whole season. You're like, finally, they're going to get there. And then right before that happens, or something happens where it's like the, you know, it's like the turning point in the whole thing, they put up those three dreaded words, to be continued, and then an ellipsis. And you're like, what in the world? They just left me hanging. And you're just on, edge, on the edge of your seat until the, end of the, until the next week. Well, I probably didn't leave you on the edge of your seat because you have your Bibles and you can read the chapter yourself. But I kind of apologize for that because it was like there's not enough time to go ahead and continue into what we're going to read this week. You see, after Jesus had led his disciples in what's commonly referred to as the Last Supper, he warned them that on this very night, it was the same night, it seems like it wasn't because it was just two or three weeks ago we talked about it, but it was on that same night he said, I'm going to be struck, the shepherd's going to be struck, and you guys are going to scatter. And he told them that to warn them because the hour of temptation and trial was coming. And Peter spoke up and he explained to Jesus, as he had said this, he explained to him, he said, you know what? He says, even if everyone else scatters, I'm not going to. I'm going to remain steadfast. I'm not going anywhere. Lord, even if I have to stay with you and as you're struck, die with you, I won't, I won't back down. I'm going to be with you through the whole thing. And I think it's interesting that Jesus didn't say, no, no, you won't. He just said, all right. He already told them what was going to happen, that he was going to be struck and they were going to scatter. Jesus, knowing the hour was late and that the hour of trial was very near, he had taken his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he took them there for one reason, and that was to get some quiet time, to be in that, in that place with the Lord and to to hear from him, to pray. And so he did that. And as he did that, what I want to point out is that the word Gethsemane means olive press. And in order for, in that time, in order to get the oil out of olive oil, they would take a press and they would squeeze the olives until oil would pour out. And we know that oil in the Bible points to the Holy Spirit. And so the Lord is seeking comfort and he's seeking the ability to go through with this trial that he knows is coming from the Lord, and he's being pressed down upon. And I think oftentimes we think about the trials that are going on in our lives, and we look at them and we go, man, this can't, there can't be any good that comes from this. But what happens is as we're squeezed, we find out what's really in us. And what happens is we find out in Jesus that when he was completely squeezed, when he was in the hour of the darkest hour of his trial here on earth, what we find out is that what was in him during that hour of trial was the Spirit of God. He was, he was fully capable of being squeezed to the point where he was hard-pressed but not crushed. He was persecuted and yet he was not abandoned like Paul speaks of. And that's the same power that we have available to us as people that submit to the Holy Spirit as we are led by Him and as He uses us in different areas of our lives. He also strengthens us through trials. And so he did this in the same way, showing the perfection that was in Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I get squeezed, um, oftentimes what comes out of me is nastiness. 
Oftentimes what comes out of me is I bite back at someone. But what we're going to find out tonight is that when Jesus was squeezed, the love of God oozed from every pore of him. And we'll find that out as we go on. But Paul gives this same warning of being watchful in prayer, just as they did in that hour of trial. Remember Jesus, he, he took the, all 12 of them with him, or the 11. Uh, Judas wasn't with them. And they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he goes off, and he takes three with him, Peter, James, and John. They had this closer relationship. And he said, you guys stay in here and pray. I'm going to take these three guys. And he took them a little further into the garden alone. And then he said, you guys wait here and pray with me. And I'm going to go a little further. and I'm going to be alone with the Lord. So when he went alone and he prayed, remember he prayed, Lord, if it be your will, if there's any other way for this to happen, for the redemption of man, then let this cup of suffering pass for me. But if not, let not, your, not my will be done, but your will be done. He showed that submission. But then he gets done praying and he comes back and he finds his disciples sleeping. They're completely you know, they're, they're worn out. They're sleeping. Whoever knows, you know, I don't know why they were sleeping. Maybe they were stressed out. Maybe they were worried, anxious. And so, um, but what I want to point out is that Paul gives this same thing that Jesus told them. He said, be sober, be vigilant, be ready. It's coming. It's, it's right around the corner, this trial. And then Paul gives this same warning in Romans chapter 13, verse 11 through 14. He tells the believers in Rome, he says, do this. Knowing the time that now it is high time to wake, to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent and the day is at hand. Therefore, he says, let us cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry, not in drunkenness, nor in lewdness or lust, not in strife and in envy. Those are all works of the flesh. But he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. So put off the fleshly things, put on the spiritual. Remember, he told Peter in the garden, he said, you know, it, it, when he said, you're going to be tried. And, and, and Peter said, oh, I won't, I won't back down. And he said, Peter, your flesh is weak. Your spirit's willing. I think you're, you're able, you know, you're, you're desiring that you would follow me through this trial. But your flesh is weak. You need to pray. You need to spend that time with the Lord and get strengthened in the spirit. Because oftentimes we feed the flesh all the time. And then we spend just a little bit of time with the Lord and we're like, why is my flesh conquering me when I know I need to be in the spirit during this moment? And it's because in those moments when we're not in trials, we're not seeking to be strengthened in the spirit. And so one of the main problems during Jesus' first coming is that Israel, as a nation, they had fallen asleep. They were a nation called out. They were a nation that was set apart. But at some point, they forgot that very fact, and they began to build up their own little kingdoms. We see this in the Pharisees and the scribes. They started to build their own followings. They weren't really about Yahweh anymore. They were using Him as a means to gain money. And so I find it interesting that during this time that the awaited Messiah that had been prophesied all through the Old Testament, even in the book of Genesis, if you've read the first couple of chapters, you'll see Jesus Christ presented, hey, the fall happened and now God's got a, a solution. He's going to send his son. He's going to send the, the second Adam in the place of Adam to die for his sins. And so <laughs> the prophecies had been given to the nation of Israel. And yet when the time was when the Messiah would come on the scene, many people were completely asleep. 
They weren't looking for the Messiah. They were all about their own agenda. And so God had anyway, despite their being asleep, he still sent the Messiah. But by the time he arrived, many who knew the scriptures, they missed his arrival because they were not ready spiritually, nor were they looking for God to fulfill his promise to them. And we all too often are just like this. We're just like the disciples. We're just like Israel. Jesus bids us to come and pray and be ready for the hour that we will be tried. He said, in this world, you will have tribulation. You will be tried. You'll be tested. He says, be ready. And oftentimes what we do is we go, all right, you know, but I'll, I'll know when it's coming. So I'll just, in the meantime, I'll just kind of relax. And it's not bad to rest into the Lord. It's not bad at all to be rested in the Lord. It's, it's actually something he calls us to do. He says, be diligent in the book of Hebrews. He says, diligently enter into that rest. But oftentimes we think rest means the recliner. And oftentimes we, we don't realize that rest means soaking up his goodness, learning his word, spending time listening for his still small voice. So these disciples are learning that the hard way. Instead of praying, they're sleeping. They're like, I need rest. I'm, I'm worn out. And uh, I'm not too sure that I wouldn't have done the same thing. They were very stressed out. This was a very scary thing. Their leader, who they put all their trust in, laid down everything to follow. He said, hey, you know what? I'm going to be killed. Well, what? Everything that we have, we poured into following you. Our families, we've left them. We'll go back to them, but we've left them to follow you. What do you mean that it's not going to go well? And so this continues to be revealed to them through the events that follow. He says uh, in Mark chapter 14, verse 42, in tonight's text, he says, uh, rise. He says, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And I need to make that, uh, that connection because they've just gotten done praying. And Jesus says, you know what? It's enough. I'm ready. You guys haven't been praying, but... It's the time. Here it, here it comes. He said, my betrayer is at hand. And then verse 43 is where we left off last week. Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And now his betrayer had given these guys a signal saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come immediately, he went up to him and he said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Just the fact that Judas had to set up a signal to point out which man was Jesus tells me that he was not a man that stood out. He didn't look like some model. He didn't look like you know, somebody that would just stand out in a crowd. He looked ordinary. He was an average Joe. He was an average... Uh, <laughs> Joshua, he was an average Jewish man. He was in their culture and they had to have a signal for who he was. They had to point him out. I think that's interesting because I, in my mind, I'm sitting there going, they didn't know what he looked like. They didn't see him. They hadn't heard his testimony before. So it tells me that all those that were going to get him, they had only heard from rumors what he had been doing. They hadn't heard him personally. That's just a side note. But as far as the signal is concerned, the kiss that Judas greets Jesus with we kind of think of as odd, right? Like he's, hey, uh, this is how you know, I'll go up and kiss him. If we did that in our culture, everybody would notice. It wouldn't be subtle at all. We'd be like, what in the world? Did you, did you just see that? Of course, growing more and more, it wouldn't be, right? That's happening in our culture. That's normal. But anyway, he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to greet him with a kiss, and that's how you'll know who it is. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, 
But the, kif, the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. So though, Ju, though Judas sneaks in as if not to be found out for who he was, Jesus' betrayer, uh, which he was Jesus' betrayer, it's interesting to me that Jesus makes sure to respond directly to Judas as this is going on. According to Luke chapter 22, verse 48, we get a little dialogue between the two. It's not like he just went up and kissed him. He was like, he got away scot-free. Jesus made sure to let him know, hey, I know it's you. I know what you're doing. In Luke chapter 22, verse 48, Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Are you kissing me? It's like, it'd be like looking at, at your best friend and going, seriously, you're going to high-five me after you, what you just did? You're going to shake my hand? I'm not shaking your hand. You know, so Jesus let him know, look, I know you're the one. Remember what he had said. He said, woe unto the one who betrays the Son of Man. It will not go well for him. It will have been better if he would never been born. I don't know about you guys, but that man, that cuts. Can you imagine being the one that betrayed him? And yet I have known so many truths about God and I have betrayed God. Knowing that he died in my place, I still, once in a while, I just... I, I go into temptation and I, I disobey him. So I'm really no better than Judas. It's just that in the long run, I, I, I repented. Judas didn't repent. And we'll find out later, the only difference between Peter and Judas was that Peter repented. Judas never did. Kind of set in place what he had done by not saying he was sorry. But those words from Jesus must have, must have been a spotlight to Judas in a dark room. Judas at that point would know without a doubt that he was found out. And I believe that Judas and everyone, for that matter, who denies Jesus by their words and by their actions in this life really believe that they'll get away with it, just like Judas did. They say to themselves, what does it matter if I deny Jesus my whole life? What does it matter if I never receive forgiveness? He was just some guy. What does it matter? And the reality is, when we consider Jesus to be just some ordinary man, it will always cause us to stumble. We will always suffer the consequences for that. Even if we just, you know, suffer the consequences, we also, those that we, we lead, those that follow us, they will also suffer the consequences because they'll see the fruit of our life and they may follow us down that path to hell. Who knows? So, anyway, what Judas will find out is that though he gained 30 pieces of silver, it will by the end of it all have been anything but convenient. Remember, he was seeking a way to betray the Son of Man conveniently. And he'll find out 30 pieces of silver. He got it, but it wasn't convenient. He actually tries to give it back, and uh, they won't even take it. They're like, hey, that's blood money. We don't want it, you know, the, the Pharisees. But what I want to point out at the, is that there's a greater condemnation for those who are raised in church, for those that go to church their whole life, or maybe those that have lots of people dropped in their path and never respond to the truth. There's a greater condemnation for them than for the person that maybe only heard once or twice. Now, the end result is just the same. They'll spend eternity separated from God, but it seems like there's a degree of condemnation that comes upon them. Just as, conversely, there's a degree of rewards that you'll receive if you will live your life completely submitted to the Lord. The more sold out you are and the more fruit that God bears in your life, seems like as a result of that, we will gain rewards. Not rewards that will get paid here. Rewards that we'll receive in heaven. And I believe that when we receive those rewards, it'll just be like we'll have more stuff to throw at the feet of Jesus and say, all praise be to him. Kind of like when you go to one of those ponds that has all the fish and you put the quarter in. Hey, you get some food. You want to throw it in. Those fish are excited. You know, obviously that's nothing like it. 
That's a bad example. Never mind. Strike that. We'll edit that out. <laughs> but there's a greater reward for those who live their lives sold out to the Lord. There are many people, I believe, that are saved. They're going to heaven. They're sealed. But I believe that there's many that are sealed and, and saved and going to heaven that will make it by the skin of their teeth and they will have laid down a pattern of destruction on the way. They won't really have bore the amount of fruit that Jesus is worthy of. Anyway, verse 46. So then they laid their hands on him and they took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Luke chapter 22, verse 51 kind of gives another insight. It says, but Jesus answered and he said, permit even this. He says, and it says, he touched his ear and he healed him. Luke noticing as a doctor, he, he paid attention to what was going on physically. And he said, as soon as that ear was cut off, Jesus reached down, he picked it up and he put it back on. And then Matthew chapter 26, verse 52 through 54 says, but Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its sheath, put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen this way? So I point you to these other accounts because I think it's important. We get a couple of insights into what's going on here. Obviously, Jesus has uh, seen what Peter did in his zeal. He's cut off the servant's ear, but he's going, hey, that's, I didn't come to fight these guys. I didn't come to protect myself. And you of all people don't need to protect me. I'm the Lord. But he's saying, I came to deal with the sin issue. I didn't come to deal with making sure that Rome would no longer oppress Israel. I didn't come to deal with that right now. I'll come back later to deal with that. Right now I came to deal with the sin issue. And in order for that to happen, my life has to be laid down humbly. And what I find out is that Jesus was not a coward. And he was also not unable to defend himself in this circumstance. He says here that he had the power to heal, and he did that. And so he used it to heal his enemy's ear. It's interesting to me because if I was being taken captive and one of the guys around cut off the ear of the people trying to take me, I'd be like, go for it. You know, protect me. Take me away. You know, I don't want to go to jail. I don't want to be killed. And Jesus didn't do that. He healed the man that was his captor. He also had the authority, he says in Matthew's account, to pray to his father and have provided to him more than 12 legions of angels to defend him. We were looking up what a legion was. Does anybody know how many people are in a legion? Six, is it 6,000? I couldn't remember. It's, it's at least 1,000, even if it was 1,000. We'll stay there. I'll look it up later, and I'll repent to the Lord for not looking it up. But there was, say there was 1,000, 12,000 angels. I don't know about you guys, but I've heard stories about angels doing things. They only needed one. He said, I have the authority to call down 12 legions of angels, and they can protect me. I can do that. But I'm not. That's his point. I'm not doing that. Jesus had complete power and authority to direct the forces of heaven to do anything he would want. And he was laying down that power and that authority to show how God's people should show love. Not by defending themselves necessarily for these kinds of things, but by being willing to lay down their rights so that someone else might experience the love of God. Not in displays of power or authority, but by showing ultimate power by laying it down. He was being meek. 
And I think oftentimes we hear the word meek and we think of somebody that just, you know, just lays down and lets somebody beat the tar out of them. Like, that guy's weak. But meekness is not weakness. In, con- in contrast, it's actually power. Meekness is power that is under control. It's where we get the idea and it's spoken about in the book of James where James talks about a horse. You think about a horse. They're tall. They're powerful. All it takes is one kick and you're done. If you walk behind them and they don't know you're there, you're done. You walk behind them. You look at their legs. You look at, they're used for battle. They're like tanks. You go into battle and you ride this horse for miles and miles and then you get to the battle and you fight on top of them and they take lots of hits. But a, a horse is very powerful and fast and strong. You think of a horse, you think of something that's powerful. Well, how do we control a horse? We put this little piece of metal in its mouth called a bit. And that bit in that horse's mouth will make it go anywhere you want under the right training. So meekness is that powerful horse with a small bit in its mouth to direct it where to go and what to do. Just like a huge ship that's sailing on the ocean. For instance, the Titanic before it sunk. That thing could go through anything, except for an iceberg, apparently. But the way they would steer it, even though it's huge and powerful, they would use this little rudder underneath. Now, no doubt, under the Titanic, it had a huge rudder, but in comparison to the rest of the ship, it was very small. So meekness, that idea, again. So Jesus had the power of heaven. He could call down legions of angels to protect himself. And the way he displayed his power was by humbling himself. In the sight of man, allowing man to crucify him, allowing man to take him and to put him into, in, under trial and to wrongfully accuse him. I don't know about you guys, but I thought about that and I was like, I don't think that I submit to the Lord that way. And I'm called to. Jesus was God in the flesh. And so let me ask you, how do you handle it when you're wronged? And how do you handle it when someone betrays you? Do you pick up your rights and start wielding the sword? Or do you lay your rights down and say, it's okay, I forgive you, and then give God time to work on their hearts, and perhaps maybe even they'll they'll experience the love of God in that. So verse 48, Then Jesus answered and he said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Jesus does does make sure to mention to each of them that it was not necessary to bring weapons. He says, why did you bring out clubs and weapons? As if he would have resisted, is what he's saying. He mentions that every day he had taught in their synagogues and in the temple. He never even tried to hide what he was doing. He wasn't trying to sneak in on them and steal their people away. He was doing it in bright daylight. He walked in the light, literally. And yet they never arrested him when that was going on, but instead they waited until they could, under the cloak of darkness, arrest him secretly because they feared, they feared the people. There was lots of people that would follow him. It would not go well for them politically or uh, popularity-wise. So then verse 50 says, Then, and this is as Jesus had told them that they would, Then they, his disciples, all forsook him, and they fled. Now we have here in verse 51 kind of a a parenthetical statement. Uh, It says, Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. So Jesus has been abandoned. We know that. 
His 11 disciples are gone, but it seems that there's a certain young man following him. Now, only Mark's account of the gospel here mentions this event. It's not found in Matthew, Luke, or John. Because of that and the wording, many believe that this man is none other than actually Mark himself, John Mark. He doesn't mention his name. Actually, John does the same thing in his gospel. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so Mark, in the same way, refers to himself and kind of says, hey, I was there. I wasn't there for all of it. Most of this I've heard from Peter. But John Mark says, but this one I was there for. And as a matter of fact, what happened to me is I came out of my dad's house, which many surmised that he was, that was his dad's house where they had Passover. And then as they were leaving the Garden of Gethsemane and they were coming and he was taking them into the city, Mark came out to see what was going on. And some of the, since he was following Jesus, some of the guards grabbed a hold of him. And when they got a hold of his garment, he took off and to the point where he was naked running through town. He didn't want to get caught. Who would, right? And so uh, I don't know why that's in there. I, I, I can't explain it other than he's just saying, hey, I was there. This isn't just some random guy writing it years later. I was there. And he even willing to make himself a little embarrassed probably to tell that part. So then verse 53. And they led Jesus away to the high priest. And with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and he warmed himself at the fire. So Peter has followed Jesus and now he's warming himself at the enemy's fire. Verse 55, Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. So in this setting, Jesus is basically being put to trial by a group called the Sanhedrin. And it says here that this group, this panel, if you will, is kind of like a council. Was, uh, it, it included the high priest, which was at that time Caiaphas, then the chief priests, uh, which I've always read this, and I was glad I learned something in this study, that the chief priest and the high priest, I was always like, wait a minute, the high priest is there, then why do they need a chief priest? Isn't he the highest of the priests? So anyway, you got the chief priest and the high priest, they're different, because the chief priest, these were others who had previously been the high priest. It was like the, the group of retirees that would get together and have a luncheon. You know, some workplaces are like that. People retire, they get together. So they're kind of hanging out going, well, when I was high priest and back in my day. So they kind of counseled the high priest that's currently in the position. And then there's also the elders, which consisted of the heads of the leading families in the community. So these are all the higher ups. This is the upper echelon of society. But the Sanhedrin was in charge of hearing cases in order to minister justice which is ironic because it says here that in this particular instance, they were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. So usually when you're seeking justice, what a judge does is he plays kind of the middleman. He says, okay, defense, you tell me what's happened. And then those that are being brought up and, and making the trial, those that are um, defending themselves and then the plaintiff who's bringing the charges against them. And so they go, okay, what happened? 
And then they're done. And then they say, okay, now you tell us what happened. And then they take all those facts, hopefully, and they make a decision based on the two testimonies. Now, oftentimes, the two testimonies don't agree. Well, in this case, what they have is the only testimonies they're looking for is ones that are showing that Jesus is worthy of being put to death. And so, according to verse 55, that's what they were doing. The problem they ran into, however, is that they found none. Jesus was found not guilty. So, what happens is although there were many who testified falsely against Jesus, and their testimonies didn't agree, it seems that when multiple people would testify, they wouldn't agree. But as there were many who were willing to give false testimony about Jesus, there was one who did so by saying that they heard Jesus say, and then they quote him. He said, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. So they're saying, Hey, he said he was going to tear down our worship place. He's going to tear down our church. We need to get rid of him because of that. He's threatening us. And so my question for you is, did he actually say that? Well, let's look at it. John chapter 2 says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. John chapter 2, verse 13 through 22. It says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. I said oxygen when I was practicing this. That's why it made me kind of laugh in my head. <laughs> with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Remember, what was going on was that they were coming into the temple. They were coming to worship. And when they would get there, they were bringing what they had to worship. And when they would get there, they would offer up what they had. <clears throat> the problem was, what they had to offer, many times they'd go, eh, that's not really good enough for our God. And so, because of that, they would say that, and then they would have to buy one of the sheep there and an exorbitant amount of money. That's a problem, right? Because the people are offering what they have. God never said, give me the best that the world has to offer. He said, give me the best of what I've given you. And so when they came to do that, and they turned them away and said, no, you got to buy our stuff, they made the people of the Lord, thank you, despise worshiping in the house of the Lord. Oftentimes, oftentimes that's what happens, right? The people that are in churches oftentimes see the people that come into churches and they go, you're not good enough. What you have to offer is not what we need. Not realizing that the church is a place for people to come and worship God and to receive from Him. Obviously, later on, we as Christians, we have something to offer back. It's really only the praises of our lips, the strength of our hands, the worship, You know, what we have to offer is not much, but we give it out of a willing heart. But they were making people unwilling by despising what they had to offer and turning them away. Anyway, that's not the point. (laughs) He said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. 
So the Jews answered and they said to them, they said to him, remember, he's just turned over the temple tables. He's made a ruckus. And so what he says to them is, uh, you know, they say to him, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? What gives you the right to come in here and turn over these tables? And he says to them, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Then the Jews said to him, it has been 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. So he did say it. He said he would tear down their temple, at least according to what they thought. He said, tear down this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He was standing next to the temple. You could see where they'd be confused. He wasn't talking about that temple because the next verse says, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had said. He wasn't talking about their building. Verse 59, but concerning this false witness against Jesus concerning the temple. Sorry, we're back in Mark 14. Didn't mean to switch so fast. Sometimes I forget that I'm not turning pages. Maybe I should just go back to using my Bible. It says, but, verse 59, not even then did their testimony agree. Even when they gave an, ex- an example, their testimony still didn't agree. So verse 60 says, and the high priest, he stood up in the midst and he asked Jesus saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and he answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ? He's not saying, Are you last name Jesus Christ? That wasn't his last name. He's saying, Are you the Messiah? Because they would know that he's, they're not talking about just some person, they're talking about their Messiah that was foretold. Are you the Messiah? And then he says, the son of the blessed. Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. That after he says, I am, that phrase there is actually from Daniel chapter seven. So he, he's using a scripture that they would know he's claiming to be God. He's not being vague at all by this time. So verse 63 says, then the high priest tore his clothes. This was a sign of mourning. And he said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard this blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. And then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. They were striking him. They were blindfolding him and saying, hey, who's hitting you? Who's hitting you? If you're God, if you really are deity, you should be able to tell us who's hitting you. And so Jesus didn't say anything. Over and over again, as Jesus goes through this process, he's questioned by those, number one, who know him the best and have walked with him, his disciples. He's questioned by those who seek his life in order to be put to death. And he's even questioned by the high priest himself. Point blank, the high priest says, are you claiming to be the Messiah, even the Son of God? Are you claiming to be deity? Are you claiming to be God? And his answer is simple and clear, and he makes no qualms about it. He says, I am. You'll remember that in one point in Scripture, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. It's the phrase that he uses to describe himself. I am means I was, I am right now, and I always will be. It's the ever-present article. And it's only used when describing God himself. So when he says, I am, he says, yeah. It's the most definite answer he could have given. 
But what I want to point out in this whole scenario is that we always, as humans, in these kinds of incidences, we look at Jesus and we go, he's going through a trial. No doubt, if we were in that spot, we'd start to question, am I really in God's will? Am I really in the circumstance that God has led me to? Because this seems really hard. We do that when things are not going what we would call favorable. We start to question if God is really in control of the situation. But what I want to point out is that in this situation, over and over again, Jesus reminds his disciples, at least when they're still around, he reminded them that these things, these events, must take place in order to fulfill the prophecy. God is in control. He knew this would happen. He foretold the very events that would take place. Now, just because we don't always see it as God sees it, doesn't mean that he's not in control. And the, the case in point that I want to make, and we'll close tonight, is from Isaiah chapter 53. Jesus keeps saying, things must be this way so that the prophecy may be fulfilled. But turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53, because most of the events that took place tonight in our reading will be found in Isaiah chapter 53. And they were centuries, written centuries before this ever took place. And this time I'll actually use my Bible because I wanted to turn there and give you guys turn, time to turn there. Isaiah chapter 53 says, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. Remember I said he, he looked ordinary. He's despised and rejected by men. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, much like Job was esteemed afflicted. They said, he must have some sort of sin going on in his life. That's why things aren't going bad. That's why things are going bad. Job could relate to this story. Verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised. Why? For our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we're healed. He's beaten, we're healed. Doesn't seem fair, does it? Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He didn't do that tonight. He didn't defend himself, right? He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, meaning that he trusted. He opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich of his, at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He's put him to grief. And when you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, 
I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. That's what he came to do. God was in control, and that meant his death, but he knew for the joy that was set before him, which was our salvation, by the way, he knew that the fruit of what he was going through would be life for many. And then it says there, and made intercession for transgressors. So even today, his job, he sits at the right hand of the Father, sitting in glory, interceding, praying for you and I that we would be found worthy to walk through this life, not around it, but through this life by faith and by our testimony and the power of the blood of the Lamb, many others would come to the saving knowledge of Jesus. And so it's interesting to me because we look at our, our Lord, our Master, our Leader, and what He says is He says, pick up your cross, follow me. And then He doesn't just go, okay, well, I'm going to live a long life. He's, he picks up His cross. He dies to Himself, purchasing our salvation. And I guess for me, what I took away from this this week was that oftentimes I'm not willing to take up my cross, to be willing to lay down my rights so that others may be fed, to lay down my position, to lay down my thoughts, to lay down even my own plans for the day so that someone else might receive life. And so maybe this meets you where you're at today, uh, but I know it did for me. It's humbling uh, to know that we have a God that's willing to lay down all, and yet He loves us. God shows his love towards us and that while we are yet sinning against him, Christ died for us. It's beautiful. It's meekness. It's power. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that that